Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Pirie and Elizabeth Zhivkova. Just before the Christmas Eve, I meet Pierre Secunda, a British artist whose research-based practice records the violence being wrought in the Middle East. By seeking to destroy not only human lives, but also historical monuments, ISIS fighters and Taliban extremists erase our genetic cultural DNA and delete history. Secunda's work examines this deliberate targeting of culture in wartime. Discussing how art can be a social vehicle that shifts perceptions on the diplomatic arena, Secunda shares with me how his work reflects upon the noise of the world outside his studio. Thank you so much, Piers, for doing this conversation with me. And I'll start with my first question uh, about your body of work, uh, which is built around the iconoclastic acts of the Islamic extremist group ISIS and the destructions caused by uh, Taliban's in Afghanistan. Can you please tell me uh, why exploring these topics is so fundamental to your practice? Well, thank you for having me on Zeitgeist 19. Um, I think that first off, I should mention that um, I don't feel in any way inspired by these extremists. Um, what, I th- what I feel is motivated and, and mobilized to respond in some way as an artist to what they're doing. Uh, the work grows out of a, um, a development in my practice, which started in around about 2009. Uh, I'd been making work for, uh, well, since I was about 18 years old, which ultimately, ex- in some respects, tried to develop an extending of the modernist painting practice um, in order to pull my work uh, into uh, the 21st century by trying to detach painting from its traditional restraints so it could be freed up by removing it from the canvas to uh, effectively take the paint for a walk, figure out what I could do with the materiality of this uh, substance of of color in the format of paint. Um, And by the time I reached uh, 2008, I had developed my practice to a point in which I could pretty much make anything that I needed to in my studio out of paint on its own, free of the traditional restraint of the canvas. So I was sort of taking paint for a walk. In 2008, having realized that I could really produce anything I needed to out of the materials that I was working with, um, I decided that it was time to start doing what I had ultimately always wanted to with painting, which was to make some a body of work, something which reflected upon uh, the noise of the world outside the studio bubble. I wanted to find a way to make work about um, the world around me, where it stood, what my place in it was. And uh, to rewind a few years previously in 2001, I had watched on the television in the United States, I'd been living in New York, the Taliban had destroyed the Bamiyan Buddhas. Um, And that was a little bit like a lance passing through my body. It felt like a a ground changing moment in many different regards, but especially for me on a personal level. 
and it focused my idea that the purpose of the work that I was making was to document or record in some way the time in which I'm living. So there was a number of years that had to still pass before I could make the work that I wanted to in the way that I wanted to. But once I reached that point, my work went in a slightly different direction, which became uh, consistently more uh, different from the traditional development of the painting practice, uh, in as much as that I started to examine with increasing focus what the deliberate destruction of culture meant and what it meant to me personally and how I perceived it. So starting with the Bamiyan Buddhas 2001, I became consciously aware of this issue and its existence and the emotional resonance that it had with me. By the time I reached Afghanistan, um, many years later, almost a decade later, uh, I had already spent time in a few places around the world, one being Shanghai, where I'd witnessed firsthand what the destruction of a culture looked like and felt like. And I felt compelled from that time onwards, which was uh, my stay in Shanghai 2009, uh, to move my work very decisively in the direction of uh, discussing this socio-political issue within the work that I was making. So the ISIS work started for me in 2014 when I started to overlay ISIS damage, molded ISIS damage onto uh, Assyrian reliefs, Egyptian reliefs, Roman reliefs, um, and try to make less of a commentary, but a document about this exceptionally important moment in contemporary history. Thank you, Piers. Uh, it would be great to talk about the work itself. For instance, uh, the exhibitions uh, shown in the UK, the latest ones, what remains at the Imperial War Museum and the very powerful installation at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. The, the exhibition, What Remains, which was at the Imperial War Museum, ran from July of 2019 to January 2020. And that exhibition was an examination of a hundred years of the targeted destruction of culture in wartime. So it started with the First World War and it examined the Second World War and subsequent uh, very significant and focused um, attacks on the culture of people, places, uh, cities, for example, um, and the nature of culture itself. So. It, it questioned what culture is or encouraged viewers rather to question what culture is. For me, a culture is not just um, the contents of a museum, the artifacts that we hold dear in, uh, in our historic context, but it's also what a place looks like, smells like, feels like to touch, what it tastes like what it sounds like. It's the textiles, the architecture, the traditions, the oral histories. It's really everything that builds up in layers to generate what a people are 
whether it's in this particular context that we're discussing now, say, for example, the Yazidi people or the Kurdish people or the Assyrian people. Um, so that exhibition at the Imperial War Museum was a very interesting moment for me because it was the first time that I'd seen a museum attempt to tackle this exceptionally expansive subject. The destruction of culture we know has always existed for as long as human history records on some level. So, of course, it's in some ways you could say a classic theme in that it's always existed in amongst human activity and we have never separated ourselves from it or gotten away from it. But at the same time, for me, on an emotional level, that means that it is that much more significant and important, given specifically that people like uh, Daesh, ISIS, are willing to focus global attention on a desire to grind it down and destroy it. The exhibition at the Ashmolean, which is current, which started uh, about 10 days ago, uh, the Ashmolean Museum is in Oxford, it's part of Oxford University. It's the university's art and archaeology museum. And that particular exhibition, which is called Owning History, Mesopotamia to Iraq, examines the development of the country, Iraq, what it came from, how it became a nation with borders, and what that means for the people who lived there at the time and who live there now. And in some regards, that exhibition draws a line literally from the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the end of the First World War. Sykes-Picot Agreement being the moment in time where the English and the French drew lines across a map of the Middle East to attempt to define where the nation states would be and where their borders would be. And it brings the story right up to the present day. And in that respect, my purpose within that exhibition curatorially is to take an Assyrian object and integrate it with molds which are made inside the ISIS damaged Mosul Museum in 2018, molds which are made of the smashed sculptures in the Assyrian rooms. I molded the broken stone texture of the sides of these sculptures which have been pounded to pieces with sledgehammers, pneumatic drills, angle grinders. And I brought those molds back to my studio and I merged a 3D print and laser scan of the Ashmolean's Assyrian relief from Nimrud, which is 20 minutes to the south of Mosul, with these broken stone textures in order to create an installation which makes the Ashmolean Assyrian relief appear to have been destroyed by ISIS. So the purpose of this is to express as much as possible. As an artist, for me, what it felt like to walk into the Assyrian rooms of the Mosul Museum and see this many thousands of years of history smashed to pieces on the floor. And that is something which ISIS did in 2014. I was allowed to go into the Mosul Museum uh, in 2018 by the culture minister Friad Rwandazi, who I had met at a UNESCO general meeting in 2017, so the year before. Um, and he had uh, encouraged me to come to Baghdad and talk to him about what I was trying to do. 
um, I had been into the Kurdish region of Iraq to Kurdistan, and I had been taken by the Peshmerga up to the front lines uh, to some very recently liberated villages in which I was able to make molds of damage to ancient sites and then bring those molds back to the studio and make the work which firstly went into the Imperial, the Imperial War Museum exhibition and then later which I've used to produce this large scale installation around 600 objects um, for the Ashmolean Museum. Thank you, Piers. Uh, you mentioned the detachment of painting from its traditional restraints and sort of talked a little bit about it. But let's focus on that. Uh, what role do form and medium play in your practice? What do they mean to you and how do they help you build your creative narrative? Well, in some respects, the work which I've made since I was in my late teens, which is when I started developing systems to release paint effectively, is how I think of it, from the restraints of the uh, 2D surface, the painted surface, the canvas. Um, I started doing that with a very sort of cheeky grin on my face. I was aware that I was doing something which was slightly bizarre and pretty unusual, but which I thought could be very interesting and at least it would be um, a way for me to find my own route into painting where I dealt far more with the objectivity of the material um, than with the traditional application of color to a surface. And the reason that I started doing this was that I had made a painting, I had no formal training, I was really completely self-taught. And I, I mean, we're talking about when I was 17, maybe 18 years old, um, but at that stage, I very decisively knew that I wanted to be an artist. That decision happened when I was 13 years old and I sought approval from my grandmother who, um, whose husband had been involved in the arts and she was very excited by the prospect that this 13 year old wanted to be an artist and she encouraged it. And I certainly never looked back. So at the age of 17 or 18 years old, I'd made this painting where I had reached the edges of the painting and realized in my ill-educated um, way of thinking that I hadn't produced a work where there was no composition and therefore I hadn't fitted everything in, which was my dilemma as I sat in front of this painting. But my thinking was, I want the paint not to have to stop when I reach the edges of the painting. I wanted a more organic system of painting. It was a slightly eureka moment that took me off in this very peculiar tangent of attempting to make uh, the paint function um, as a material in three dimensions so that I could literally take it away on an organic level and produce works which could grow in different directions physically and however I wanted them to so that I was completely released from that canvas restraint. The purpose of that ultimately was that if you think about the history of painting from cave painting right up to the present day, the tradition of painting is the application of color to a surface. And that was the issue that I was having. And I thought, well, if I can just get rid of that surface and just deal with the materiality of the paint, but within the context of a modernist painting practice, might have something very interesting to find in that place. That sort of 
cheeky grin that I had when I started making that work has slowly ebbed away as the work has become more and more uh, socially engaged and um, has moved further and further away from the traditions of the modernist painting practice. Um, as social media has developed and become a platform for the voices of many, many different opinions and sentiments about politics and social dynamics around the world, I felt increasingly encouraged by what I'm doing, partly because I felt in the early days, 2008, 2009, when I was making very difficult work about the nature of the destruction of culture and its emotional effect on me as an individual, as an artist, um, I didn't really think that there, the resonance was going to exist with a viewing, um, let's say, in the instance of the Ashmolean, a viewing public. Um, but as the work has developed and, and social media has developed and the need for people making works of art to contextualize what they're making in a way in which it sits in the format of discussion in the 21st century in a broader sense, not just about the internalized interior of the bubble of uh, the development of the painting practice related to the traditions of modernism and the extension of it, et cetera, but about a social context and social framework and where we're, we're going in the world as human beings, um, I felt more and more encouraged in the work that I'm doing and the acknowledgement that the Ashmolean Museum give uh, to the work that I've put in to developing this practice, um, examining the destruction of culture has been very re rewarding for me. The form is therefore an integral and irremovable element of the work because when you take the paint out of its tube, you're left with a material which ultimately is going to go hard, it's going to solidify, and you are dealing only with form. So you're suddenly dealing with the material as though it's a sculptural material. So there is an inseparable quality of form and function in terms of the, pro the, the um, production of an object. And then outside of that spe very specific um, merging of those two things, the paint and the object um, as the finished form, the finished object being uh, a painting simultaneously made with sculptural practices, um, then there's the social context. And in this instance, as we're discussing at the Ashmolean, the dilemmas of the very focused and targeted destruction of culture by ISIS on a systematic scale. For me, it's the biggest story in art for at least now 76 years since the end of the Second World War. It's totally impossible for me to ignore it. And so I'm very fully engaged in um, examining it and attempting to describe through the work to people who've, who experience it what the emotional experience of being there and seeing it is as a Western artist. Speaking of the examining the destruction of culture, in one of your interviews you mentioned that your body of work had a diplomatic effect. 
This is very interesting. Do you think art can contribute to strengthening or changing the trajectory of social political conversations? Yes, there's absolutely no question whatsoever that that's the case. Um, immediately off the top of my head, uh, I can give you uh, an example which springs to mind. If you think of Picasso's very famous, renowned, and highly celebrated painting, Guernica, which acknowledges and documents and in his personalized way uh, the bombing of the town of Guernica in Spain by the Spanish fascists uh, with the help of uh, Nazi Germany. What you see in that painting is um, a, a scream from the heart from Picasso about uh, the mass murder of innocent people in his country. And that painting casts an incredibly long shadow across history uh, right up to the present day. And that painting, when uh, the American politician and uh, ex-military leader Colin Powell presented his um, proposal for an invasion of Iraq, which subsequently happened in 2003, uh, it was done at the United Nations. And his presentation was uh, put forward to the public and to the other member states of the UN as he sat underneath Picasso's Guernica. Whoever it was that stagecrafted that uh, speech which Colin Powell gave understood without question the power of that reproduction. It's a tapestry reproduction which hangs in the UN in New York of Guernica and chose to cover it because they understood the dichotomy of Colin Powell proposing what potentially could be in human terms the most costly war since the Second World War or maybe since the Vietnam War um, which was being pitched underneath this incredibly compelling and powerful and very emotionally absorbing work of art. So there's no question that these warnings from history, these works of art like Guernica, have a resonance through time. My personal experience of being involved on a very, very small level, very low level and very, very small way in its sort of diplomatic arena happened in 2017 when uh, shortly after the Kurdish referendum in Iraq, um, Baghdad chose to uh, react in a very aggressive way. The Kurdish region of Iraq voted uh, for independence from the main body of Iraq, what they refer to as federal Iraq, meaning um, Baghdad controlled Iraq. And the referendum had a extraordinary response within the uh, Kurdish community and well over 98% voted for independence. In retrospect, I think that on a personal level, I see that referendum request and uh, desire for independence from Iraq as a way of um, uh, waving a flag and saying, please, you've got to start listening. Baghdad's response was a military response, and they moved into the 
ethnically Kurdish city of uh, Kirkuk and seized Kirkuk, which is uh, still controlled by Baghdad now. And there was some very serious fighting between the Kurdish government and the Peshmerga, the Kurdish military, and the Baghdad and the Baghdad-controlled Iraqi army. A very short time afterwards, I was asked by the uh, Kurdish high representative to the UK, uh, Kawan Tahir, uh, if I could help with a project. And initially, I didn't know what that project was going to be. And I said, well, of course, if it's something that's helpful to you, just tell me what you would like or what it is, or, you know, what I can do to help. So he said that he had suggested to the ambassador of uh, Iraq to the UK um, a uh, project which would, if I was agreeable, be an exhibition of works which I'd made um, about uh, my uh, experience of seeing da uh, Daesh, ISIS, damaged ancient sites in Iraq, and um, that that exhibition would potentially happen in the Iraq embassy. The purpose of the exhibition was a bridge building exercise between the Kurdish high representative to the UK and the uh, Baghdad mission to the UK, the ambassador and his staff, um, who basically didn't really know each other at all. And there had been a couple of very fleeting um, handshake, hello, how do you do type uh, uh, passings. And so I said, yes, of course, I'll, I'll make the work. And I took the conversation forwards after a couple of meeting, meetings. I put together a proposal for what the exhibition would be. And in due course, the exhibition happened actually in the ambassador's, the Iraq ambassador's house, which is in an area of London called Holland Park. And that house was purchased uh, by Saddam Hussein in the 1980s. So when the Kurdish high representative and his staff arrived at the house, one of the Kurdish uh, high representatives staff stood in the doorway of the house just outside the step of the uh, of the front door and said and sort of looked inside kind of uncertainty on his face and said you know this house is bought by Saddam Hussein and I understood of course what that meant what he was really saying was look Saddam killed 182,000 Kurds why do I want to come into this guy's house anyway he did come in. There were a considerable number of people at an opening event, and that's why he was there. And everybody talked. And there was a moment in which um, one of the staff of the Iraq ambassador said to me, Piers, I don't think that we're going to have speeches. I'd written a speech. I'd been told that the ambassador would give a speech and that uh, the Kurdish high representative would also give a speech. And this fellow came to me and said, I don't think that we're going to have speeches. You know, let's do things one step at a time. Um, you know, this is a big step as it is. Um, everybody's a little bit anxious and we want to make sure that the evening goes well. Um, you know, speeches could get a little bit tricky. People might be suggesting political positions, etc. And we don't want to increase an already existing tension. The intention is to go in the opposite direction and that was the intent of this project of course so initially i thought well okay i understand what you're saying but then i went to one side and spoke to the uh, ambassador and i said look sir 
I think that it's extremely important actually that people have an understanding of the context of this project and understand why we're here collectively as um, a group of people who have a common feeling about Daesh and what they're doing in the Middle East. And I think it's important that we explain what that is and, and really put it into words so that it's completely clear, so that we all understand that there is a synchronicity between uh, the, the different sides of this discussion being the Kurdish and the um, Iraqi, Baghdad Iraqi. And he agreed and he said, yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. So he sort of overruled the person who had said no speeches. Um, and then he said, well, why don't I give a speech? And then as the person who's connecting two sides, you can give the speech second. And then Kawan Tahir can give his speech as well. And I thought about that for a second. And I said, actually, I think that you should go first. We're in your house. And I think that Kawan Tahir should definitely speak second because Kawan Tahir is here in the UK as a representative in the UK of the Kurdish people of Iraq. That's a lot of people. I don't represent anybody but myself. So in terms of hierarchy, he's definitely far above me and definitely should speak second. And then I'll speak afterwards. What I have to say is going to be far less significant and of far less importance. Um, I'm just trying to act a little bit as a glue in this situation. So he sort of laughed and said, okay, I understand what you're saying. Let's do it that way. So I'll go first, come on to you, a second, and then you can give your speech. Um, the ambassador and his staff subsequently became very close friends with Kawan Tahir and his staff. So in, in, in regard to asking, is it possible for art to have in any way, even the smallest uh, fingerprint effect on diplomacy? There's absolutely no question. I could never have thought that when I left Chelsea Art College in 1998, that my work would be used even on a very low level as a diplomatic tool, but it was. And I saw that there are extraordinary opportunities within that field for people to take advantage of uh, the ability of artists to bring together uh, disparate systems of thinking, which was not a context I had ever imagined my work could be put into. Um, but I, as I said, I saw it for myself and I watched it happen. And I then went to several different events after the opening of the exhibition in the ambassador's house, a couple of which were at the British Museum, where Iraqi people, archaeologists, had come to the UK for a training program. And at the end of the training program, um, there was a sort of handing out ceremony when they had received an acknowledgement of their um, uh, passing through of this course, which is organized by the British Museum of training archeologists and then sending them back home to continue their work. And all of the archeologists were Iraqi. Some of them were Kurdish. So the Kurdish high representative was there and the ambassador were there and they chatted away continually. And I'm sure could do for many, many hours. As far as I understand, they're all still connected with each other. So. Um, People have tried to tell me in the past it's not possible for art to play a diplomatic role of any form whatsoever. It's a fantasy. Well, I totally disagree. Thank you for sharing this story with me, Piers. 
uh, as well as bringing up Guernica's ongoing power. This made me think of another uh, research-based work by Polish artist Goszka Makuga, and I love it. I love how she examined the journey of Guernica with that 2003 blue curtain cover-up, sort of another poignant example of the profound relation between aesthetics and politics. But let's go back to your work. Um, I'm curious to know what other topics you feel the necessity to address and uh, maybe you can tell us what's coming next for you. Um, what comes next? Well, I am to a certain degree still looking at um, ISIS, Daesh, and what they've done. Um, I would like to make some work about the effect that they're having in Africa. Uh, in the Western media, we don't really hear very much about them anymore. We mostly hear about um, a bright orange man called Donald Trump. That's going to change very shortly, I think. Um, but the focus which the world had on the issue of um, the type of extremist uh, activity that ISIS had proliferated between 2017, 2000, uh, sorry, 2014 and 2018 um, has faded off the front pages. It's been replaced. But they are not gone. They're very, very active in Africa. And uh, they have a very strong foothold. And Egypt, for example, struggles very considerably against the doctrines of ISIS um, and its uh, resistance groups, the likes of Boko Haram, who are in uh, Nigeria and Mali. Um, these places and these organizations are very, very strong in Africa. Uh, sorry, these organizations, the places are predominantly the northeastern uh, quarter of, of Africa. They've had a significant effect in Libya as well. Um, and uh, there is some sort of stirring going on in, in, the, in, the, in the far northwest in Morocco and Algeria. Um, but there is really quite considerable and pretty much outright war going on between ISIS and the Egyptian government. Um, that receives almost no coverage in the media at all, which is pretty shocking. They've been displaced rather significantly from the Middle East, and this is where they now fight their fight. Um, I think that examining what happened in Mali uh, uh, under the likes of Boko Haram and ISIS is an important thing that I have to um, see through. Uh, exactly what went on is the destruction of tombs which are um, visited and revered uh, by people in Mali and also uh, widespread destruction of libraries, ancient libraries, 13th century, some of them um, documents which examine uh, astrology, mathematics, um, what we now would call physics, um, chemistry, biology. Um, uh, Timbuktu was the most uh, learned place in the north of Africa in the 13th century, and there are extensive libraries, which some of which are hidden in private possession, and some of which were uh, owned by the nation. And uh, uh, quite a number of these ancient manuscripts, which have not been examined or translated, were destroyed, reduced to ash. Um, I tried to go to Mali um, at one stage 
2018, um, but the opportunity to go back to Iraq and to go to Mosul and go into the Mosul Museum, uh, which is something that I've been pressing for for a long time, um, came to the fore and I had to make a decision between the two. But I would still very like to visit uh, Mali and specifically Timbuktu, where I have uh, connections with some people who are working on the restoration and documentation of the existing manuscripts. Um, that's a very long running process. Um, so there's an element to which I still need to uh, continue my examination of what ISIS do uh, to culture and its effects. Um, but in a bigger picture, uh, there are two bodies of work which I've been making uh, for quite a while. One I've been making in complete total secrecy, uh, which is work very specifically about the environment. I'm not quite ready to, um, to spill the beans on what that is yet, but uh, the work has been slowly accumulating um, for almost 10 years. And in the next few years, I will be in a place where I feel maybe even sooner, very, very much happy to expose this work and show it and um, uh, put it out into the world a bit. Um, the second body of work, which I've been making for a long time, examines the history of the energy industry, the petrochemical age. We live in the petrochemical age. Everything that we do is fueled by it, for better or worse. And I think that it's without question the most important time frame in human history because it covers the moment at which we separate ourselves um, from the Industrial Revolution and move into a world which starts with the lighting of homes with kerosene and comes right up to the internet age. And it passes through every technological development in between, which is basically the Victorian era to the present day. So the world has changed uh, irreversibly and in ways in which people could not possibly imagine so I'm looking at crude oil as the primary uh, material, the, the, the sort of lifeblood, if you like, of that time frame, and looking at where it's taken us, what it's enabled us to do, and how it's offered us the ability to make choices which we've often chosen to make in a way which subsequently have become detrimental to humanity. Um, that's a very, very big picture project. And if I am able to continue making those works with crude oil, which I print with using silk screens, up until the end of my life, I may have covered the demise of the um, fossil fuel age, or at least a considerable, uh, considerable portion of it, and have produced um, a visual document which shows in some regards, the journey that has occurred in between. So those two bodies of work are very important to me. They're very long running. The environmental one I'm very excited by, and I hope that in the next year, maybe year and a half, um, it will be at a, a point at which I can show the works. I, I'm sorry that I can't go any further and describe what the work is. It's just a little bit too soon, but maybe we can revisit it in about a year and a half, and I'm sure I'll be able to tell you then. 
Thank you so much, Piers, for this fascinating conversation. And uh, we at Zeitgeist 19 will be carefully following your upcoming projects. And I'm wishing you a very productive year ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on Zeitgeist 19 and uh, come back to me anytime you like.